chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Sounds like an airplane again. I've got to come up with a better saying. But look in the seat in front of you. You'll find a Bible in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Chapter 1 is the big number, and the small numbers are verses. And so Isaiah chapter 1 is where we're going to be for this message. As we begin, we're launching an endeavor to begin Isaiah. Isaiah is a very large book, and we will we'll see that. So the movie, Back to the Future, starts in 1985, and they've made several sequels. One of them, they go into the future for real. They don't go back to the future, they go to the future. And they go to the future, and it's 2015. Steven Spielberg tried to imagine from 1985 what 2015 would look like. And let me tell you some of his predictions, his prophetic predictions. Flying cars. Do we have flying cars in 2015? Not really. Everybody had a flying car in that movie. Hoverboards. Flying hoverboards that actually were off the ground, flying around. They had gadgets that put people to sleep. They had lots of flying robots that did videos, and they had self-tying shoes. So think about that. 30 years ago... Those were his predictions. 30 years. That's pretty far off, even though it was 30 years ago. What about 100 years ago? What about before flight? Would they have ever imagined that we would have put someone on the moon? Predicting something from 100 years ago would be even crazier. What about colonial America? Would they recognize the America that we have today? Those guys fighting in the revolution, would they look at today and say, oh yeah, we knew that was going to happen course not. What about 700 years from today? 700 years ago, if someone decided to make a prophecy about what today would look like, how accurate do you think they would be? They would probably get some things right, possibly. They'd probably get a lot more wrong. The thing we see about Isaiah is that it was written 700 years before the time of Jesus. 700 years, it has over 100 prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled by one man, by Jesus. A hundred year, or a hundred, over 100 prophecies. And these are not just vague prophecies about maybe possibly being some flying cars somewhere in the future. These were very specific births. They were very specific timings, um, genealogies, locations, um, things that he would accomplish that are outside of his control. And we're going to see in Isaiah a lot of these prophecies. But I don't want you to think of Isaiah as only a book of prophecies. I want you to think about it as a proclamation. It's a sermon of sorts. It's a a proclamation that says that God is holy, holy, holy. There's no other attribute of God that is repeated three times like that. God is not love, love, love. God is not mentioned as being nice, 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 or kind, kind, kind. But he is holy, holy, holy. And that's very significant as we go forward. It proclaims that the Lord saves. You can find salvation in nothing else but the Lord. Lord is another name for God, just so we're all on the same page. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 is all we're going to cover in today's sermon. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 begins like this. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah of Judah. Let's pray. Father, as we study your text today, I pray that your word will speak forth, that your vision of who you are would come out clear. God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who are in attendance today, that they would be transformed by this information about the vision of who God is, that we would see that the Lord saves. Nothing else on this planet offers us hope. It is Christ and Christ alone who comes from the Lord. God, we are so grateful for your text that you have provided us. Father, the book of Isaiah is massive in its scope, but so helpful in helping us understand this coming Messiah, this Jesus. God, as we study your text, help us to not grow weary. Father, there's so much good information here that we would be unwise to neglect it. Father, help us to pay attention to what you have to say. Lord, help me that I would speak only the words that you would have me speak. Father, I pray that if I speak anything counter to your will, that you would remove me from this pulpit. God, we thank you for your love and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the prophet Isaiah points to the fact that the Lord saves. That's what this this book is about. It gives a vision of God to his people. We even sang in our, our passage about the word of God, the, the word of God, the voice of God comes to his people, comes to his people. The people hear his voice and know him. And we hear that over and over, the songs that we sing, the things that we talk about. So God's people hear his voice. The problem is we don't always listen to the voice of the Lord, do we? In fact, we want to go our own way or we want to reason it away. God won't really make you die if you eat that fruit, that forbidden fruit. Did God really say that? Oh, he just doesn't want you to be happy. The book of Isaiah is significant in many ways. There's, first of all, its size. It's 66 chapters worth of material. 66 chapters worth of material. We're not going to be reading all that in one sitting. Second, it spans the life and ministry of Isaiah, who ministered from 740 B.C. to 700 B.C., 40 years of his ministry. Third, the themes of Isaiah are almost endless. It is almost endless in themes. The early Christians referred to this as the fifth gospel. They referred to this as the fifth gospel. And it's directly quoted 66 times. And that's an interesting number, 66 times. And it's alluded to 348 times in the New Testament. The coming Messiah is revealed in three ways. In Isaiah, three primary ways. And this is how we're going to break down 66 books. We're going to break them into three books. So, three books. The first book is the book of the king. This is pointing to the Messiah that's coming as the king. These are chapters 1 through 37. So, that's the first book, if you will. And the second is the book of the conqueror. The, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is the conqueror. Correction, sorry, the servant. The servant first. We got king, servant. He is a servant. He's going to come and suffer, and he is going to be a servant. Chapters 38 through 55, we'll cover that book. The third book is the book of the conqueror. The Messiah will come as a conqueror. Chapters 56 through 66. 
Now, some have argued against Isaiah as the author. Some mainline denominations will say that he wasn't um, the one who wrote all this. In fact, he may have only wrote in a portion, and the rest of it was later added on. I think that's baloney. Um, and there's lots of evidence to uh, back up my position. And the main evidence is those that have said that it was a compilation have changed their tune over the last 20 years. The more information that we get, the more we recognize that this is all written by one man, Isaiah. And Isaiah lived for this time, and he wrote during this time. But we're going to start with verse 1. Verse 1 is the uh, theme verse for the entire book. It's, it contains the entire book in a title. And so the first thing we see is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The vision, singular. It's not plural. Did you recognize that? Did you notice that? Vision. When used, it's used in 35 occurrences. And it's always referred to as truth disclosed by God. So it's not necessarily a vision in the sense that you see something happen before your eyes or a dream, but it is a word from the Lord. It is truth revealed by God. In fact, I would say that the most important things in life are not discovered, they are revealed. The most important things in your life are not discovered, they are revealed. And we may want to unpack that more as we go forward. But pay attention to what it means to have the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Ultimate reality is found in God's revealed will. In God's revealed will. It tells us who we are. It tells you what we are. It tells you where we're going and why we're getting there. It tells you all the details about life. What God says is ultimate reality. Think about that for a minute. The creator who created everything gets to decide the function. If you went up to the uh, maker of the iPhone and said, no, this is a doorstop. This is not a phone. This is a doorstop. You would be silly. But how often do we do that when we come to creation and we say, well, how could that possibly have been made by accident? It's an accident. We're all nothing but fizzy stardust. But we look at creation and we see a creator. And we'll see that as we go forward. So ultimate reality is found in God's revealed will. Your reality, what is true, what is ultimately true, is only found through Scripture. This is important. I don't want you to miss it. God reveals Himself in two ways according to Scripture. Two main ways. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation is nature. The things we see. We, see, we learn a lot about God when you look at the mountains, don't we? We, look, we learn a lot about God when you, taste, you look at your taste buds. And you recognize that you have taste buds that God did not have to put in there for all these different flavors. That you can enjoy color. We have eyeballs that are unique that can look at a spectrum of things. God created things for a reason. And they all point to God as creator. They have a character of God that we learn. But the problem is, we don't get the full picture, do we? Because we have decay. We have destruction. We have abandonment in nature. We have evil or what appears to be evil in nature. So what do we do with that? Do we then decide that God is an evil God? Because some people will make that decision. If you go to the furthest reaches of Africa where they don't have an internet, which I don't think there are that many anymore, or you go to South America where there's nothing but jungle, 
They all have a vision of who God is based on their understanding of the things around them. So there's a general revelation, but it doesn't give us the full picture. In fact, we even have a conscience. We have a moral sense of right and wrong. And that moral sense can be adjusted based on how we sear it, how we, we, we uh, put hot brands against it. We sin and we continue to push away that. And so we have a natural sense. But there's a special revelation that God provides. And that special revelation is His Word. He tells us exactly who He is through the revelation of Himself. And so when we read God's Word, we read in the Old Testament, we read in the New Testament, we see the very character of God. We see who He is. This is the only sure way of knowing the character of God. You can sit there and pretend in your mind that you know who God is, but guess what? It's just a fantasy. You can sit and, 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 and say, well, my God would do this. My God wouldn't destroy the Canaanites. My God would do that, or my God wouldn't do that. But the reality is you're making something up in your own likeness. You're making your own idol. And that's what the people of Israel began to do. They began to create their own gods. Instead of listening to God's word, which tells them exactly who God is, his character, his nature, everything about him, they abandoned the special revelation of God for natural revelation. They said, well, the Canaanites sacrificed their own children, and that gave them a lot of food, so we're going to do that. They rejected the word of the Lord. Ultimately, for Christians, we know that Jesus is the living word. Jesus is God's special revelation in fullness. And so we can learn even more about the word through Jesus. But the people of Judah and Jerusalem, they neglected God's word. Now, I have heard it said that we live in a post-truth world. That doesn't mean that, that truth is on a post for those country folks out here. But that means that we are post-truth. Like the truth is here and we've moved beyond it. I'm quite a, a developed human being. I've moved beyond the concept of truth. Have you heard that before? And so your truth is not my truth, and my truth isn't your truth. And we think we're so developed, we're so civilized, aren't we? We all have our own truth. But that's silliness because, first of all, there's no truth if that's the case. When someone says that, oh, that's just your truth, I like to look at them and say, well, is that the truth? Because what they just made is a truth statement. If they say that my truth is my truth and their truth is their truth, that's a truth statement. So is that true? Right? We're, we're, we've moved into this circular reasoning and there's no source of truth, which is silly because then there, that would be a statement of truth. So we have this complicated knot that we've tied up and we have to take the word of the Lord and cut that knot in half and slice up that silliness. So what we see is that God's word is truth. In fact, Pontius Pilate asked the same question. Pontius Pilate looked at truth in the face and said, what is truth? Pontius Pilate looked at Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He looked at the very word of God and he said, what is truth? How blind do you have to be to miss the truth of the word standing before you? How do you know what ultimate reality is? God's word is the only sure source of truth. It's the only thing that we can rely on. It's the only thing that we can anchor in. It means that we know who we are. We know that we are created beings with an immortal soul. We are created for a purpose. We know that there's a reason why 
We don't function the way we want to function, the way we sin when we sin, the way we, we break God's law whenever we want to because we have made ourselves as little gods in our own heart. So we have to look at God's Word. We have to look at the Bible. That's how we learn how to worship. How do we worship God? God doesn't tell us that we can come to Him any way that we please. He has specific directions. God is a jealous God. That means we cannot worship other gods. And we can't worship Him in a way that He doesn't like. So, we have the Word of God, the Bible. And this is the lens that you have to see the rest of Isaiah with. You can't look at Isaiah without using this as your lens. Understanding that God's Word is truth, and what God says is true, therefore we need to understand it so that we can live in light of it. And that's what we're seeing here. Because you have the people. The people that Isaiah is talking to. So the divine warning is first to Judah, and then to Jerusalem, and then to the rest of God's people. They have rebelled against God, committed sinful acts, they turned to false gods and began to worship and neglect the worship of the one true God. Now, if you remember your Bible history, I'm going to take us into a Bible history place. I hope you're ready for an exam when this is over. I'm just kidding. There's no exam. All right, so remember about 950 B.C., the kingdom of Israel is divided. What once started out as a great and victorious conquest of the promised land under Joshua, then you had the judges with lots of everyone doing what they wanted, then God gave them a king because they cried and they moaned about it. And he gave them a king. And then what happened? The king's son was not such a good boy after all. We have this guy named, after Solomon died, Rehoboam comes along. He listens to the youngsters. He gets his advice from the elders and then from the youngsters. And he goes with the youngsters. And he decides that he's going to be mean. He's going to be harsh. He's going to be hard on the people. And the people say, you know what? We don't want this. So Ten tribes, the northern tribes, went with this guy named Jeroboam. So they left Rehoboam, which makes it confusing, and goes to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam turned their house on the ho backs on the house of David. They turned away from the house of David. So these northern tribes begin to worship false gods, and God ends up removing them from the land. He wipes them out. Because what's the promise come through? The house of David. So if you abandon the house of David... You've abandoned the Messiah. And that's what they did. So they they were removed. Leaving the southern kingdom, Judah, with its key city, Jerusalem. Now, the southern kingdom was much more stable. It lasted much longer. But it still had a lot of issues. It had a lot of ups and downs in their faithfulness. And this is where Isaiah comes in. So Isaiah warns the southern kingdom, Judah, in chapters 1 through 35, we see a, a warning of sorts. Then they go into exile. What he predicted comes true, and they get taken off into exile. When they're in exile, he preaches to them then, chapter 40 through 66. And then you have a historical bridge right in the middle. And so let's look at these people that Isaiah is talking to. The first guy is this King Uzziah. This King Uzziah offered unauthorized worship, and then God made him a leper which is kind of an interesting thing. He went in and, and, and offered a sacrifice on his own authority, and then God removed him completely from the people and made him a leper, which means he is no longer allowed near the temple. God removed him from being able to offer worship. Then his son, King Jotham, you know what he did? He did not sin actively necessarily, but he sinned by omission. He refused 
to remove the idols in the high places. He let them continue to worship however they wanted. King Ahaz was known for his wickedness. He sacrificed his own son on the altar in order to get what he wanted. He killed his own son. And then King Hezekiah was more faithful, and he destroyed the idols, and he rebelled against the Assyrian rule. All these kings are addressed in Isaiah. And you can read about the background. It's so fascinating. If you go to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you can read about this whole disaster that is the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. We're going to see, we're going to see many warnings about neglecting God for idols, for the, the practice of sins of omission and sins of commission. The reason worship to idols is odious to God is because God is on, the only truly worthy object of worship. Is that right? When we sin, it is because we do not treasure God above all. We're seeking comfort. We're seeking safety. We're seeking happiness or satisfaction in something other than God. This happens every time we sin. We are looking for comfort, safety, happiness, what we desire over God, the one that provides for us. So I want you to sit here for a minute and examine your heart. It's an introspection time. We're going to look at our hearts today. What sins are you most often directed towards? Are you more often directed towards sins of omission or sins of commission? Think back to this week and the last week, and what kinds of sins have you done the most? Let me give you some definitions to help us on our journey. Sins of omission means that we... Uh, means not doing what we should. Omission means not doing what we should. If I know that I need to um, feed my children, not feeding my children is a sin of omission. Right? I'm not doing what I should. A sin of commission means doing what we should not. Right? That's what we usually think about when we think about sin, Right? is doing what we're not supposed to do. So when you look at all the thou shalt nots and you compare them to your life, are you sinning by omission or commission? Look at your heart and see which direction you are typically inclined. Take a minute and think about it. This week, were you more likely to, to sin by doing what you shouldn't? Or were you more likely to sin by not doing what you should? When we think about that, we recognize that we all sin. And you guys know that I enjoy reading some biographies of Martin Luther. And you know that Martin Luther was a character. He was a little funny. He was a weird guy. He probably had some mental disorders, but we love him anyway. And he was really, really worried about his sins. And so he would go to the, the confessional, and he would confess. He, now, this is a time when he was a monk. Right, so just so you know, as a monk, he had to wear the, the rough clothing, he had to stay up all night, he had like nighttime prayers, daytime prayers, mid, midnight prayers, uh, before lunch, before dinner, after every meal, wash your hands three times, pray five times, like all these things he had to do, yet he had a lot of sins he had to go and confess, and he would spend hours in the confessional. Finally, his priest was wanted to give up on him. He said, go sin, and then come back and confess it. Go do some something that actually needs to be confessed. And Luther would walk away from the confessional 
and then remember something and run back because he didn't want to be to forget. He said, what if I forgot about a sin I did? What if there was a sin of omission that I didn't know was an omission and then I'm, I'm guilty before God forever? He was, his heart was heavy. So the good news is, though we sin, we have a great redeemer. And that's what we see what the prophet Isaiah begins to, to pull out. Isaiah is not identified as a prophet until chapter 6. Until chapter 6, we don't really see his calling, his prophetic calling. We know that the word Isaiah is translated from the Hebrew as Yeshayahu, which means Yahweh saves, or we could say the Lord saves. It's a lot easier to say the Lord saves in our English. But just remember, that's what Isaiah translated means. It means the Lord saves. So that's a major, if not the major theme of Isaiah is the Lord saves. So we have a people that have turned away from God and they face conquest and capture. And Isaiah first warns them about this coming conquest. And then he offers them hope and comfort. Now Isaiah is not a really popular character. He is not your best friend who always pats you on the back when you do bad things. He is not the one who takes you out drinking and makes you feel better about yourself. Isaiah is not going to be invited to a lot of dinner parties because he is going to call out your sin. And when you read through Isaiah, your sin will be called out. I want to warn you now, we are going in and Isaiah is going to start cutting away the cancer that is sin in our lives. In fact, one king, according to extra biblical literature, did not like Isaiah so much, he cut him in half. Isaiah went running away from this king, uh, Manasseh, we, we think, and he went into this tree and it was a rotten tree, and the guy said, cut that tree open to get Isaiah out, and chopped it in half, and Isaiah was cut in half. So he's not, a, he's not your best friend. He's not someone that's going to make you feel good. He's going to make you angry, especially if you're not humble enough to confess your sins. He prophesies destruction, and he warns those who are in rebellion, and that would not make him popular in today's society, would it? But he's like a surgeon. He comes in and he cuts out the cancer. Nobody likes to be cut open or cut on. He cuts that cancer out and then he sews the body back together and begins to apply healing and mending. And he does that to the people of Israel. He cuts them open with the word of the Lord, with the saw, with the, the sharp double-edged sword. He cuts open the people of Israel and then he offers them healing. He says there's a Messiah. He says this Messiah is king. Jesus is king over the world. He will rule, he will suffer, and then he will conquer the whole earth. And he said, that's good news. That's the good news of peace. Isaiah points out that sin requires a repayment. All sin requires a repayment. He says there's a relationship that has been broken. There's been a broken relationship. A covenant of marriage has been adulterated. God's people have committed adultery against him. That's what Isaiah says. Who is going to bear the burden of this adultery? Who is going to face that sin? And Isaiah says God will. God is going to take on the sin of the world through his suffering servant who gives his life for many. He bears the sins, as Isaiah 53 tells us. During his life, Jesus was struck and beat up. We learn about that in Mark. Let's go ahead and look at... well. Just stay here in Isaiah. I'm going to read it to you. Mark 14, chapter 65. 
says, then some began to spit on him. And this is talking about Jesus. This is what people did to Jesus. They began to spit on him. How vile do you have to be to be spit upon? They blindfolded him and beat him, saying, prophesy, prophesy, prophet. The temple servants also took him and they slapped him. Imagine that. The people who offer sacrifices to the Lord took the Son of God and slapped him, spit upon him, blindfolded him. And Isaiah, in chapter 50, verse 6, says it this way, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Isaiah prophesied what's going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus fulfills it. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 8, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. That was Isaiah. But did you hear the echoes of Jesus? Did you hear what Jesus went through? Same thing. That's why they call this the fifth gospel. Because this tells us 700 years before what actually happened to Jesus. According to the gospels, Jesus is this long-awaited serving, suffering servant who would redeem a people for himself and he would lead a greater exodus from the power of death and sin into life. Jesus is the son of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive. Have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. He is the son of David, prophesied in Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through, 6 through 7 says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The Messiah is prophesied from Isaiah. Every time we read in Isaiah about this coming Messiah, we should see Jesus. You can't miss it. And if you're missing it, it's kind of silly. The Messiah prophesied in Isaiah is the New Testament Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10-11 says it this way, Concerning the salvation. Who is the salvation? Jesus. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched carefully and investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
The Spirit of Christ was in Isaiah, bringing him to prophesy this. This is a prophecy based on God and His Word. Everything in Isaiah is meant for our benefit. We see New Testament repeat that over and over again. So do you see the Isaiah, or the Messiah, I keep saying the Isaiah, do you see the Lord saves in Isaiah? Do you see the Messiah in Isaiah? This book builds its theme slowly over many chapters. And without a doubt, the dominant theme is that the Lord alone saves. Our only hope is in the Lord. The question I need to ask you is, do you know this truth? Do you know this Messiah that Isaiah prophesies about? Are you living in a world that feels like it's being torn apart by all sorts of wickedness in man, in humans? Babies in the womb being destroyed because of man's sinfulness. Our, our children, our babies are being placed on altars of what we call autonomy because we worship ourselves. We see that today in this world. We also see wickedness across the country. We see everyone worshiping their own way, just like the judges talked about. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The question is, where is our hope found? Is it found in your ability to be smarter than everybody else? Is it in your ability to be able to build a bunker out in the middle of the Arizona desert where you can ride out any storms? Is it a mask or a vaccine that will save you? What is it going to save you? Where do you put your hope? I hope that you will turn to Isaiah and say, I put my hope on the Messiah, the coming Savior, the Lord saves. Jesus is this prophesied person. So the question is, do you put your hope in Jesus intellectually only? Like, oh, Jesus was a good person. He said some nice things. Jesus didn't say some nice things. Jesus said some pretty harsh things. I come to bring a sword, he says. He says he comes to judge. He says to repent. So if you like Jesus, then you need to recognize that he called out your sin. He did not come here and just give you hugs and say it's okay to be sinful. But he called out the sin in your life. But he also came to bind up the brokenhearted. So when we are suffering, when we are wounded, when we are injured, after we've sinned for the 15,000th time, we can still come to him. And he calls us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you, upon me. Take my yoke upon you, and I will give you this rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so what we learn is that we learn this Jesus is not only a, come, a conquering king, but he's also a suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior, a servant who came to serve. So your task this week, your challenge this week, is to read Isaiah chapter 1 and try not to read Isaiah chapter 2. Don't get too excited and keep going. I'm just kidding. Go. Go and read Isaiah. Get as far along Isaiah as you can get because it is so fascinating and it's so well written. It has poems. It has narratives. It has all sorts of things. It's it's like a mixture between every genre of the Bible. There's songs, there's psalms, there's wisdom literature, there's stories, and it all points to this guy named Jesus. And so we read the, this book of Isaiah and begin to contemplate what it tells us about God and what it tells us about us. Because so often we act exactly like Judah. We act exactly like the Israelites. We are hard-hearted. We are hard-headed. We are very hard in our thinking many times. So that's your, your job this week is to read as far as you can in the book of Isaiah um, and start to contemplate. Don't just read it because I said to, 
let's start to think through it. What does it mean to need a Messiah? And what if we were in the place of the people of Jerusalem and Judea? Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we are so grateful for your word, your word that speaks truth. Lord, this vision, this, this word from the Lord in Isaiah has such powerful implications even today, even 2,700-something years afterward. God, this, this message of the Lord saves is needed today as much as it was then. God, I pray that we will be a people that will push this message to the whole world that the Lord saves, that people would see you and see Christ through, through us. God, help us to be a people who loves those around us. Help us to be a people that points to Christ and the hope that can be found solely in Jesus, in Christ alone. God, we thank you for your word that speaks truth and counters every worldview out there. Father, we have a consistent collection of eyewitnesses who have written about what you have told them. God, we thank you for the inspiration of the word, the inerrancy of the word, the infallibility of the word that brings hope to us and that we can rest and trust in you. God, give us rest this week. Father, be with us as we remember Verna. Father, what a great and blessed woman she was and how enjoyable it was to, to know her. Father, I pray that as we remember her and we prepare, that we keep the main thing the main thing. Father, as she would want us to know you more dearly, I pray that we would do that as we recognize Verna and all the accomplishments and all the things that she did and, and was. Father, I pray that you would help us also to see that Savior that she loved so dearly, that she sang songs and hymns to on a regular basis. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. Be with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.